Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And uh, we are going to take a sidestep from our normal routine, which is discussing COVID-19. But interestingly, uh, if you understand this topic, it will unequivocally give you the tools and the resources to help prevent any damage from any infection, including SARS-CoV-2. So the divergence we're going to emerge into today is the second, probably going to the leading cause of death overall, which is cancer. And we're gonna talk about a, uh, a fascinating component of it that I didn't realize until I got a copy of this book written by Dr. Nasha Winters, who we're gonna be dialoguing with today. And the title of the book is Mistletoe and the Emerging Future or of Integrative Oncology. So I don't know that many of you have heard of it. We're going to hear a lot about mistletoe today. And more importantly, and broadly, the strategy one should take to hit this. I mean, this is, you know, interestingly, well, we'll talk about this, but cancer is not a new disease. I mean, it is a new disease for the most part. It didn't essentially exist 150 years ago, but now it's like one of the leading and, and progressing to the leading cause of death. So there's, you really have to understand uh, how to approach it because either you or someone you know or love deeply will will be, struggle with this. Guaranteed, 100%. And most of you watching this, it's already the case. So this is going to be a fascinating resource because Dr. Nasha Winters is, in my view, the leading go-to integrative oncologist in the U.S., maybe the world. Uh, I have enormous respect for her. I didn't always have that view of her. I was somewhat skeptical, but over the years, I've come to appreciate that about her. And I, there's no doubt if I ever come down with cancer, I doubt I ever will. But if I did, I'd see her first. And, and she kind of agreed to see me, which is really good because she says <laughs> it's impossible to see this woman. She's just, she's such a demand that the only way to get to her is indirectly through the people she's taught. So uh, fascinating woman. So we are just uh, privileged to be able to dialogue with her today. So with all that intro, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Doc. It's so good to be here. As I was saying to you before we got started, uh, you know, I, I think about you a lot. I know you have, um, you are being kind of the, the don't shoot the messenger guy. You've definitely been the messenger as of late and always have been. I mean, I've been following your work for many, many years. And I know um, with the type of things you say comes controversy, but our world is controversial times right now. And we have to be willing to lean into, you know, the sort of out of the box concepts and conversations. And you have never shied away from that. So I'm really grateful. Yeah. For you. Well, thank you for that. You but you. it's not so much leaning into these concepts, it's just yeah. embracing the truth and helping people yeah. understand it in a way that gets them through the brainwashing. And thankfully, we've been able to really help a lot of people. And the real the reason they're focusing on me, it's not that my reach is so big, it's just that I have a powerful voice because I've been at this for a quarter of a century. Yeah. Yeah. When I say something, it's been my observation that many people listen because I know I'm there, I have no hidden agenda, no ulterior motive. So that is why they perceive me as such a dangerous threat and why there's such an enormous amount of intense effort 
to discredit me and get me out of the picture. It's <laughs> Christine, you know, life is so great. The more they try to discredit me, the more, the more important my voice becomes. It's just crazy the way they work. I, I think these guys didn't understand what they're doing. <laughs> you're like, you're like, they're helping you market without, you know, without yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't be better. So. Well, and it's interesting because controversy as well. Like I, I've had the same kind of dynamic. I've been as of this month, October of 2021, at the time we're having our conversation, who knows when this will come, you know, mm-hmm. out in the public. We'll it, yeah. Sure. Yeah. But when, but at the time of our conversation, I'm coming on to 30 years out from a, of a, a death sentence of a terminal cancer diagnosis and, and still to this day get um, met with so much resistance to what I've learned for myself and for thousands, if not tens of thousands of other patients directly, as well as maybe way more than that indirectly through the training of their physicians. And so, I mean, talk about two of the most controversial things we can talk about today, which is oncology and, and sort of the immune system and its relationship to both um, a pandemic viral issue, as well as a pandemic cancer issue. For me, they're the same source. It's a broken terrain. And that's where I put my focus. I don't put my focus on a virus and I don't put my focus on a cancer cell. I put Mm -hmm. my focus on the health of the host of which those things will invariably land or meet us at some point in our existence. So that's, that's my crazy controversy is is I focus more on the human organism and the health of that terrain versus the condition or the disease or the label that over overlays that person or that. And you picked a perfect uh, profession to engage in, or at least develop your professional training. So, and I neglected to mention that, but thank you for for laying the groundwork and frame for what encouraged and activated your interest in this area, you know, a personal challenge. But then you went into naturopathic medical school because there's two different types of naturopaths. I had a girlfriend like 20 years ago who actually was a naturopathic physician like you. And I think you may even went to the same I college, did. I South, know her very well. Yeah. <laughs> Southwest College, probably yeah. about the same time. Yeah. And um, so, and it was her constant frustration. She's not practicing now. She's just a, a, a mother and a, and a, <laughs> that's a, a full job. job. <laughs> a yeah. So, job. but uh, it was her frustration when she was that there was this massive confusion from the people and not to disparage people who go to night school and but it's a totally different thing. And they don't have licenses like the, the four-year schools. And there's only a few of them. So you went to one of those schools, yeah. uh, specifically Southwest, I believe, in Arizona. You nailed it. And, uh, you know, you, you acquired a set of skills that really helps you to understand the foundation of how to do it. And, and I appreciate you, you know, laying that perspective. That, that is the strategy. You're not treating cancer directly. You're upregulating, improving the body so it can respond to whatever, whatever, whatever it needs to, to adjust to and optimize the approach to defeat the, the challenge. So let's get back to mistletoe. Most of us know about it as that holiday decoration that you can swipe a kiss on it, and, uh, you know, but it has far more profound uses. And prior to reading this book, I didn't understand. And I want you, would like your insights on this. It seems to me from reading your book that you have to be literally highly irrational and delusional not to integrate this into almost every therapy for any type of cancer. I mean, it's just crazy not to. So anyway, that's my summary and you can take it off from there because this is, this is your book. I love, well, what I love is that you're like, okay, we're done. You know, we're good. You've got this, but no, this is really powerful. Um, this therapy, just to kind of give a little context, as you said, we're kind of miss, uh, we, we think of mistletoe as the kissing, the kissing plant. Um, and if someone studied it, <clears throat> excuse me, in any framework, they'll see that it's been utilized in medicine 
for thousands and thousands of years. It has roots in Druidic times. Um, it has roots in Hippocrates time. Um, it goes back, you know, thousands of years as a, as a significant herbal remedy for things such as epilepsy, for disorders of the spleen, as poultices and topicals for pain um, and rheumatic conditions. So it has been used as a therapeutic intervention, this semi-parasitic plant that you will see uh, you know, growing in the, the branches of, of thousands of species of trees from all over the world. And yet about a hundred, just over a hundred years ago in 1917, this talk about another controversial character, doc, <laughs> you know, Rudolf Steiner. Yeah, historic luminary for sure. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, like someone who just had this keen observational sense, which I think is very important to be a good practitioner today anyway, you know, is to be a good observer of nature and, and the people and the interactions around you. And, and Rudolf Steiner, this, this philosopher, happened to look at the trees and notice this plant growing in them and said, boy, that it looks like a tumor. And as is the case for many vitalistic um, medical you know, practices from Ayurveda to Chinese medicine, to naturopathy, to homeopathy, to even aspects of osteopathy and beyond, we see this concept of the doctrine of signatures. So for instance, you look at a walnut and it kind of looks like a brain. And we think, I wonder if that's any good for the brain. And sure enough, you know, we find some, some significance in how it impacts the brain or things like lungwort, you know, this, when you look at it, it looks like a, you know, like a lung. And yet we've learned that this medical, you know, this herbal medicine is very helpful for lung conditions. Well, the similar thing was happening with, with mistletoe growing in these, in these trees. And it wasn't applied for a few more years after he made that observation in 2017. It was a doctor in Switzerland, Dr. Ita Wegman, who started to apply his observations to the human condition to see how this medicine impacted a patient with cancer. And so it's since then, you know, enjoyed over a hundred years of, of consistent application in the field of cancer as both a standalone as well as an adjuvant support. And interestingly enough, who knows how in the world this man figured this out all those years ago, but in his observations, Rudolf Steiner understood that you needed to harvest different components of the plant. So the berries that, that bloom in the winter, which is very abnormal and the leaves that that grow in the summer and that it never touches the ground and that it grows inward and that it has a very um you know interesting behavior compared to all the other plants that was also an observation of sort of how cancer works as well it goes against the rhythm it grows out of sync with the organism that is very much what he also recognized in this and as such he harvested the plant and aspects of the plant at different times blended it and then took a particular extract from it and he also noted that it needed to be injected because you have to remember 100 years ago we didn't know about lectins we didn't know about viscotoxins and somehow he understood that you needed to inject it to get the cancer benefit, to get the anti-cancer benefit. Whereas today you could take the full tincture, you could, you know, you could take it in other, in other ways, and it has a lot of other medicinal impacts, but it doesn't have the anti-cancer impacts. And the reason being we've learned, or at least we suspect, because we're still learning, is that those lectins and things get broken down in our GI tract. 
mm. they don't get into the bloodstream and they don't access uh, the, the immune system in the way they need to when we inject it. Um, either um, subcutaneously or intravenously, or even peritoneal or para, um, uh, intrapleural, or, well, yeah, or even intratumoral, which is what we talk about in the book. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I definitely want to get into the mechanisms because it's pretty yeah. fascinating how it likely works. But can you respond to the question if you believe that, as I suggested earlier, that it's likely useful as an adjunct in any uh, therapy for any cancer? hundred percent. And okay. I've been training physicians on how to use this for several years now. Um, and now I'm with a group. In fact, our, the co-authors of this book, we all actually run a course now. And you'll notice in our, in our group of physicians, we are naturopathic doctors. We are medical doctors. We have one DO in the mix. And we, one of our doctors is even on a hematological oncologist at one of the largest hospitals in Europe, um, mm -hmm. specific to cancer. And so with that being said, um, you know, these are legitimate, you know, we're, we're a collective coming together with decades and decades of experience. One of our physicians has been using mistletoe for 45 years mm. in his practice. And what we've seen clinically and what the research suggests is that this therapy it has always been about using it with others. It plays very well with others. It should not, it was never um, really developed to be a standalone therapy, though, believe me, we've seen impact with that as well. And that it has virtually no contraindications with mm -hmm. any of our standard of care therapies. So we can literally inject this into a patient the morning before they go into a surgery, or they can start on this therapy the very day they're going to start a round of chemotherapy or radiation. It does not, it bypasses first phase detox pathways of the liver. So it doesn't interact or intervene or speed up or slow down detox processes that could otherwise cause some adverse events or change the behavior of the desired effect of a certain medication or a certain herbal intervention or dietary intervention. And so it really does play well in the system with others. And it has, as we'll talk about here in a bit, some mechanism of action, which is very, very interesting. But what we find most interesting is that it enhances these therapeutic interventions, even the most toxic of therapeutic mm -hmm. interventions and seemingly brings a better quality of life and a lower side effect profile to the patient that, as you said earlier, this should be utilized in my personal opinion with every patient going through a standard of care approach to just enhance their experience with treatment. Yeah. So interesting that it has no contraindications. That's very unusual and odd in medical exactly. therapies, exactly. including, you know, one of the things that clued me into your initial uh, fascination, my initial fascination with your approach is that you uh, uh, wide, widely embrace the use of cyclical ketogenesis and, and the metabolic approach to care therapy based on Tom Seyfried's work. And yeah. Interestingly, with that approach, there are some contraindications, and I, yeah. especially with cancer. I mean, if you're cachectic, you just you can, you're playing with major danger if you if you start that type of intervention. So, you know, this is even more broadly applicable than than uh, cyclical ketogenesis. I have to agree with that. I mean, that's where I love it is, is that you can really um, pair this very well with standard of care therapies, with dietary interventions, with herbal interventions, with uh, you know, physical treatment interventions that are often 
you know, that, that a ketogenic diet can actually, you know, be contraindicated in some of those situations or certain different times, or that certain herbal remedies are contraindicated with certain, you know, like everyone gets excited about green tea or it gets excited about curcumin and makes it sort of a panacea. And yet we know that high dose curcumin or even green tea extract can actually cause liver enzyme problems Mm -hmm. and impact the liver pathways. We also know that Um, you know, green tea extracts for some people with certain epigenetic expressions with like Mm -hmm. a slow catecholamine, um, calm tea snip is actually contraindicated and can actually make someone's estrogen back up more in the body and cause problems. So there's a lot of things that we kind of, uh, have to be careful with saying, Hey, it's good for everybody, Mm -hmm. but mistletoe in my experience and that of my colleagues is that this is probably the least harmful and least contraindicated uh, substance and therapy I've ever had the privilege of working with. And I'm still learning from this plant as are my colleagues and the research is learning along with us. So to your point, it is pretty extraordinary and pretty rare to find something that is this applicable to the masses. Yeah. And I think it, not only is it the least dangerous, but it's probably the least appreciate or at least well known <laughs> because I really wasn't aware of it. And I'm pretty astute to figuring understanding that these things early on, but it, it never really impressed me before as being as something that's so crucial, and important to integrate into every approach for cancer. And believe me, I've a lot of friends and that I've known through the years have had it and I would never recommend it, but now it's, it's definitely part of the strategy. So would you say that's true also that most even natural medical physicians aren't aware of how Absolutely. helpful it is? Absolutely. And in fact, when I started training physicians in this several years ago, I had a lot of pushback. And ironically, the biggest pushback I had were from the naturopathic community. They were terrified of using this therapy that was quote unquote unproven. And and I'm like, "You, you have to understand just because it hasn't been FDA approved does not mean it is not an effective medication. Mm-hmm. Um, just because we are not extremely familiar with it in, in the United States does not mean it is not well understood and utilized abroad. Mm-hmm. And just because it may not, um, you know, be something you were taught in medical school, be it naturopathic or osteopathic or conventional mm-hmm. medical training does not mean it is not a, a, a powerful therapy. As I said, it is, you know, over a hundred years old of continuous use. It has over 250 very good, um, you know, randomized studies that would be even considered excellent studies within standard of care in the United States today. It just completed a, a phase one clinical trial at Johns Hopkins in the United States as an IV application for solid tumors um, and is getting ready to move into a phase two clinical trial. It is the most studied integrative oncology um, therapy in the world. And it is a, it is utilized in upwards of 60 to 80% of all cancer patients in Europe will likely utilize this therapy at some time. And it's even in the sort of um, repertory or the registration in parts of South and Central America, all over Southeast Asia in India, um, in particular, different parts of Europe. This is just part of their medical system. And our colleagues just north of the border in Canada have it registered and our folks south of the border have it registered. It's just in the United States where we uh, have a little bit of resistance to and and sort of embracing it into our conventional uh, medical system. Yeah, and with this last two years of the COVID nonsense, it's easy to understand why. I mean, it, it couldn't be more flagrant 
and flagrantly obvious. It's the reason is it's the drug companies. They they love to suppress things. I mean, we have well documented drug drugs even they like to suppress because they're competitors like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. I'm not huge fans of them. They clearly work. I think there's better strategies, but clearly I have no objection to anyone using them. It's certainly as an alternative to what they're recommending the COVID jab. But it's the same process, and it's so blatantly obvious that they do this. And so to to to, to uh, it's it's just easy to understand that they're doing the same thing for anything that's threatening their their financial revenues in the oncology and they're significant if i'm not mistaken and you can you can support this i remember this from earlier interviews with uh, talking to some oncologists that i think oncology is the only specialty in medicine the only one where they sell the drugs directly to the patient and these drugs as most everyone knows are expensive maybe give us a range and i think it's maybe a hundred thousand dollars a month or even more in some cases but i, I think the clinician gets like a significant cut, maybe a third or half of that. Well, and it's interesting because there's, there's elements of truth to that. Uh, you know, I can't speak to exactly what it is, but I do have a handful of colleagues that are standard of care, conventionally mm -hmm. trained oncologists who would verify what you're saying just yeah. from your own clinical experience and, and have decided to sort of step out of that um, because of conflict of interest and also mm -hmm. because they don't want to be limited in utilizing therapies that actually can enhance what they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and help their patients have better outcomes it, and make their, their outcomes look better, you know, at the end of the day. And, and so, you know, a, a little thing I want to go back to, cause you talked about this, about kind of the drug suppression or, mm -hmm. or therapeutic suppression from the, the system. I mean, as a, as a naturopathic physician, who's been practicing integrative oncology for some time and who has teachers, mentors, colleagues, friends from all over the world, some of the most powerful therapies I've seen as anti-cancer that are beneficial, even to the standard of care model of treatment, things like artesanate, curcumin, quercetin, you know, a green tea extract, all of those in intravenous forms, mm -hmm. those have been taken out of our, our ability to use here um, sort of outwardly in the United States. Do my colleagues still find workarounds and how to get access to these very important medicines? Absolutely they do, but they have to tread very, very carefully and very lightly. But again, you go north of the border or south of the border and you have no problem accessing these therapies um, or you go to Europe. And this is what I've been doing for the last two years is these treatments that we've had great success with have been plucked out of our ability to access easily, readily, legally. Um, we're now having to send our patients abroad for them to actually get good cancer care. That's mm -hmm. what's really devastating to me. And another part of my purpose and mission is to build a research, you know, an, an in-house residential research institute and integrative cancer hospital right here on our soil. So we don't lose access and patients don't do you think access. that's possible you're in the u.s yeah. i mean well it is I mean, it just we're seems doing it. so unlikely with the i mean things are getting worse every week yeah. they're they're, yeah. Oh, they're, yeah. they're abandoning you know every semblance of rule of law and yeah. Yeah. and the, the tyranny and you know the lack of a, you know, effectiveness of the judicial branch of the yeah. government i mean it just doesn't hardly exist anymore so they could, they're, they're just destroying freedom and personal yeah. liberties so how could you get away with doing that type of research on, on you in the U.S.? Well, first of all, it's we're completely out of the model. So we are not going to take insurance and mm -hmm. we're the hospital is a not for profit hospital. So it will be cash funded. It will be research grant funded. It'll be philanthropically funded and it will be endowment funded. We're all Don't you think they'll shut you down? I mean, look what they're oh, doing. They'll try. But the beautiful thing is we have thousands and thousands and thousands of patients that have been waiting for this, the doors of this to open. The other thing is we're a research institute. 
So we're getting ourselves really dialed in that we will be doing all of our um, due diligence to let people know that these are not FDA approved therapies, that people are coming in in a research environment. Um, they're either paying cash or they're getting, you know, grants, you know, based on their financial ability um, to help them cover these care, this care. We're doing it in a pretty uh, open-minded medical state. Um, the state of Arizona has one of the broadest scopes of practice in the country. And we're also very close to our, our southern border um, again with Mexico so that if we do come up against someone shutting down one of our therapies for a bit, we are able to take our patients um, across the border to a little sister clinic to keep the continuity of care. We don't anticipate that happening because of in our, you know, people are coming as a buyer beware. They're coming with being well-informed to know exactly who we are and what we're about. And frankly, as you and I talked before the recording started today, we get thousands of inquiries a month from all over the world looking mm -hmm. for this approach. The patients will drive this, this home. And I do have colleagues like you and others saying, wow, why don't you just do it in Mexico? Or why don't you just do it in Germany? Or why? Well, those places already exist to some degree. The biggest challenge is I want this to be on our soil. I want to leave a legacy of changing the care of cancer in this country. Um, this is where it's about. And yeah, it's a big, it's a mighty David Goliath story. If you ever heard one, especially now, but I also think the time is now because we also have these acts like the right to try act has passed. And because we do have more and more patients facing this, this diagnosis with grim outcomes. And because even a study that came out in the last year that looked at 17 years worth of conventional cancer treatments, the overall of 96 different drugs they looked at that were used over the last 17 years, the overall average survival rate of those pharmaceuticals was 2.4 months. Okay. <laughs> that is the reality. And this is what's driving the, the um, clinical oncologists from around the world to sign up and take my course. Right. And so I have physicians coming in from, you know, from naturopathic doctors, integrative, um, you know, uh, functional medicine physicians, naturopathic physicians, functional medicine physicians, integrative oncologists and standard of care oncologists realizing that none of us are getting away from treating cancer patients and that all of us need to do a lot more to support these patients. So there is this massive kind of underground movement that's starting to sprout and come above ground that's happening. And frankly, mistletoe is one of the vehicles for that to happen. So I tie this back around because there was a big shift that happened when um, Hopkins took this on. And the irony is the, the only reason this clinical trial took place was not because NIH or some powers that be funded this study, this study was funded philanthropically and with people's donations and passion and purpose. That is how we're getting good research today. Non-industry driven, non-bias driven research to say, does this work? And we fully expected that they would do everything they could to shut down this trial. And it's been so effective that it's been approved to continue on into the other phases. We are very excited and hopeful that the tide is turning and that we have more and more people saying we'll philanthropically fund the research that's needed 
to show therapies such as mistletoe or some of these other off-label uses in certain viral patterns or other cancerous processes that could be happening under our roof. And so we're very excited about that possibility. And we are finding people coming out of the woodwork who are interested in helping fund this vision to come into reality in this country. Yeah, that's really the only practical alternative because Fauci has pioneered the process of really directing this all this funding from the federal government, primarily through NIH. But of course, he said of the NIAID and has directed over a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars of funding from the federal government in this last 50 years in office, not in office, in his position at NIAID. So he's basically controlled it. I mean, all the funding goes to the, the principal investigators that are totally connected with, with, the, with pharma. And it's just this vicious cycle that you, is very difficult to penetrate. So I mean, really the only other way is, is philanthropic approach. So congratulations for that approach because nothing else is going to work. And that's just it. We had, instead of trying to fix the model, we're just creating a new one. I mean, yeah, really yeah. this is about sidestepping it. Exactly. And, and similarly, like kind of coming full back around with mistletoe, where a lot of people, you know, have been kind of against it is you can't patent this. It's a natural therapy, right? It's, and so that's where there wasn't interest. There was no big pharma interest of the money they could bring in. However, what we're also hoping to show is that it could lower hospitalizations. It could lower delay in treatment. It could lower side effects, you know, that require medical intervention that ultimately lower the bottom line of insurance coverage for patients going through standard of care. So we also know that that back doorway speaks to the insurance companies and speaks to folks that may support um, this type of care for their patients. So what we're trying to do is build the bridge because we know okay. we can't go against it on one level. So we're building a new model, but we're also trying to build a bridge and we're able to show that this therapeutic intervention, which when you look at the bottom line, a lot of integrative cancer therapies, doc, you know, are very, very expensive, very expensive. This therapy in comparison is one of the least expensive and most effective out there. You're looking yeah. at about maximum 250 to $300 a month of an, an intervention mm -hmm. that when you're looking at the cost of say vitamin C, that's been really well, you know, shown or, mm -hmm. um, DCA or some of these other, you know, metabolic interventions, hyperthermia, we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars, thousands sometimes, right. And so we're excited to have a therapy that basically is accessible you know, to the general population and even different foundations and organizations exist to even help patients without the means get scholarships to purchase this product and Good. to use it as an, as a supportive intervention. So what we're realizing is instead of putting our energy into, um, into funneling and fighting the old, mm -hmm. we're very interested in just putting our energy into creating the new. And that's Good. where I feel like in this, especially in these last couple of years, I don't have the bandwidth to, to keep fighting the old. So I'm just sort of like, I know there are lots of people like yourself and others out there who are taking on that. I'm, while you guys are kind of keeping them distracted with that, we're up building something entirely new in the healthcare model. No, we're, we're not fighting them. We're just I exposing, know. we're exposing exactly. them. You're exposing Because they really, they are so sophisticated and powerful that it's almost impossible to fight them. Other, it's unless you do some very clever yeah, strategies like in the art of war, but mm -hmm. you know you can't fight them directly; they're just too big. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's get back to mistletoe, though, because yeah. you mentioned in one of these expensive interventions, hypertherapy, one of them, pretty effective. But that's probably—I mean, it can be used like that because it actually raises your core body temperature yes. if used 
intravenously, uh, and there's a whole variety of methods that one has to understand before you can apply it because of the there's different species and they you have to understand those to use it. But why don't you discuss that and then some of the other mechanisms? I think you know we we've laid the groundwork that people can understand. There's there's a high, high likelihood that's going to be useful, but it helps if you understand why it's useful. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things we've been doing, you know, when I was starting out in practice, I knew that the immune system was integral to how we were going to deal with cancer. Right. Mm -hmm. I knew it was a, a very big important, you know, the metabolic and the immune function, first of all, they're very, they're also very tied together, which we're finding. I mean, we're seeing that our bodies are unable to fight a basic virus if we're metabolically broken. Right. So we can't um, separate those out into a silo either. This also applies to how mistletoe works. So if someone's still living on a standard American diet and still metabolically broken, mistletoe is going to be less effective for that person than someone who's also taking charge of their health in other ways. So I do want to paint that picture as well, that it's not the magic bullet and it won't, isn't the magic fix. Mm -hmm. What it is, however, is an immunomodulator. We do know that. And, and in today where we're funneling billions of dollars into clinical research on immune therapies that just a few years ago, these same oncologists that are, are super excited about immune therapies just a few years ago, poo-pooed the idea of somebody like me saying that it's important to get your immune system functioning to deal with cancer. Right. So mm -hmm. until there was a drug that they made money from this just sort of didn't exist. It's, you know, it's just the way it is. But the thing about today's modern immune therapies, which are where we're funneling the majority of our research dollars now is that they are less than 20% effective. And by effective, I mean response rate. And by response rate, I mean to be able to look at a scan or an imaging or to be able to look at a tumor marker and make a difference, you know, bring it down a little bit. That does not mean cure at all, right? But the languaging we put out there in, in advertising the success of these therapies makes it sound like they are cures. So to be, you know, just to reiterate, only, a, you know, less than 20% have a response to these blockbuster immune drugs. Yeah, could you well, just give an example of some of them? Because I know sure. you're very familiar with them and it's sure. likely many people would be also. So a lot of folks have heard kind of like Jimmy Carter's story, you know, with his brain, his melanoma that it messed to his brain and that he took this immune drug and is now really kicking. Well, that drug was Keytruda. Um, um, and so that's a checkpoint inhibitor. And that is basically um, the, the, mo the most common drugs you'll hear about are things like Opdivo, Keytruda. You might hear about PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. Those are checkpoint inhibitors or CTLA-4 inhibitors, also a type of checkpoint inhibitor. These are drugs that block, a, like kind of pull the brakes off your immune system to mm -hmm. go hog wild in treating the cancer. Mm -hmm. Now that seems like a great idea, unless you have underlying <laughs> metabolic dis dysfunction, right? Hello. 90% of the population has. Yeah. 88% per studies. But well, that was, that was 2016 data. So I'm sure it's you. over 90. Hundred, yeah. I totally agree. And then also the amount of autoimmunity. If you have an underlying autoimmune condition, you are also someone who's likely going to have a not so positive response to these medications. What I love about mistletoe is it comes in and it modulates that teeter totter. It doesn't take the brakes off and make it go hog wild. And it doesn't suppress. It basically says, Hey, 
are you over expressing in this direction or this direction? And it modulates thinking kind of adaptogenic in some ways. So it behaves a little bit like a smart bomb, a smart drug, um, in that it can um, tight, it can sort of match itself to the individual. It is not a protocol. It's, it's a patient-driven process in that we, to you mentioning this earlier, we look at the person's gender, we look at the tumor type, we look at the tumor stage, we look at the general condition of the patient itself, and then we consider the most appropriate host tree. The most common are the pine, the fir, and the apple tree um, hosts for mistletoe tend to have the highest lectin content that have the highest anti-cancer content. And then we look at the dosing frequency. And even if we're going to do it subcutaneous, intravenous, intratemoral, intraperitoneal, et cetera, depending on where you live in the world um, and how we're going to pair it with other therapies, if at all. Right. So it is based totally on the individual and the individual's response. We want the patient to have a little local reaction. If they're injecting it, we want it to get a little redness and irritation and itchiness and maybe you know, tenderness. We want it to raise the body's temperature a little bit. IV therapy will do that even a little bit more robustly, intratemoral even more robustly. And so the point is, is we want to create this cytokine release at a very low grade level. Whereas when we bring on an immune drug like Keytruda, mm -hmm. it creates a cytokine release at an explosive level that can sometimes be fatal for patients. I assume it's not targeted also, it's systemic. Exactly. And that's just it is that we're not looking for a single receptor site like those drugs are looking for, mm -hmm. right? So they're looking for a PD-1 or a CTLA-4 receptor site. This is a systemic terrain-centric approach. And so in its mechanism of action, it's engaging with the B cells, it's engaging with the T cells, it's engaging with natural killer cells. It's basically saying, hey, are you guys online or offline? If they're overzealously online, it calms that down. So you don't get this massive immune over immune reaction that can be problematic. And if it's dormant and not behaving properly, it wakes it up, it stimulates it to do its job as it was meant to be. It also has this very uncanny ability to lower inflammation directly. So we can even do testing. Like, you know, I love to do testing. Mm -hmm. So we can watch mm -hmm. C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, um, you know, homocysteine, LDH, you know, liver enzymes. We can watch those things come down with this so we can see it in real time. So we're not just guessing. Mm -hmm. We can see that it's having an impact on the immune system by a good old CBC because we'll see the eosinophils come up a little bit. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see kind of a normalization of our neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, which you and I've talked about in the past and the importance of that. We'll definitely see that piece. We can also measure serum or plasma VEGF, vasoendothelial growth factor, which is a driver of angiogenesis, which oh, is- I didn't know you can measure. Is that a commercially available test? Yeah. Well, yeah. You can go to um, LabCorp or Quest. You can get- um, Wow. Serum. I did not know that was available. Yeah. Is, yeah is, are there any nuances measuring. in measuring that? Like, does it have to be fasting or- Not, like, I, I always tell my patients fasting just to, you know, I'm usually yeah, doing yeah. a pile of labs. We just do that. But, but I definitely use that as a baseline, especially if someone's wanting to put them on an angiogenic inhibitor. It's like, mm -hmm. well, let's see, because we can test that in the tissue and on a liquid blood biopsy to see if the tumor or the tumor cell expresses VEGF, but we can also see what's happening systemically with VEGF and we yeah. can mitigate that. Yeah, that, watch that come down. VEGF and cancer is a nightmare. You definitely want to suppress. Yep. There's a lot of drugs targeted toward it, but actually in, if you're trying to get healthy, it is absolutely yeah. crucial. And, and if you don't activate the production of VEGF, yeah. you will, you'll, you'll be absolutely 
guaranteed to develop frailty. Well, and that's what happens. A lot of these folks get on these drugs, the anti-angiogenic drugs, and they end up basically from jumping from one frying pan into another. Yeah. Um, yes. And so, and what we see, what's very interesting about angiogenic, the anti-angiogenic drugs, things like as an example of that is a Vastin. If a patient's on a Vastin, um, typically within three to six months, I start to actually see their serum or their plasma VEGF start to rise. I start to see other angiogenic processes that happen, such as copper angiogenesis will start to rise because as you said, we need vasoendothelial growth factor just to survive, yeah. right? Yeah. And so the body is going to find a workaround. So if you're blocking it, if it's your whack-a-mole blocking it over here, it's going to find another way to overactivate. But if mm. you've not modulated and changed the terrain, you can actually create more angiogenesis that feeds the tumor versus the terrain when you're on those drugs that block. And so like an interesting thing, vasoendothelial growth factor activation, the number one cause, well, there's two major causes of it, metabolic dysfunction. So basically insulin drives it as well as stress, stress response. So cortisol drives it. Those are the two biggest things we deal with on our planet today. And so you can put all the Avastin you want in the system to block that pathway. But if you don't also address the stress response and the metabolic response and clean up the terrain, it's going to find a workaround and it's going to be just as aggressively activating of that tumor growth as anything else. And so I love that you have this therapy mistletoe that comes in that lowers inflammation, that lowers that Jeff that actually one of its most potent and most studied interventions or mechanisms of action is that it's a quality of life enhancer, right? Mm. Specifically what we believe. So important. So important. So important. We think that it's upregulating both the endorphin as well as the endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. It seemingly has. This is all from mistletoe. It is all from mistletoe. So then you're getting that stress modulation. And if you're getting that stress modulation, you tend to not be, you know, using food as, as your drug of choice. Maybe you have a little more wherewithal to choose better, you know, options for yourself versus medicating, you know, um, with sugar or alcohol. And then interesting, we've actually had several studies that it does in fact, lower blood sugar and lower Mm -hmm. insulin. Um, there's, there's, so it really is hitting all of what we call the terrain 10 from my previous book, the metabolic approach to cancer. I find that mistletoe tends to hit every one of those drops in the bucket from epigenetic expression. We use it to, uh, um, clean up DNA. So we use it for people who've gone through radiation. We'll use it as a DNA stabilizer. Um, we'll use it if people have taken a course of Cipro to help clean up the metabolic mayhem, the DNA damage that Cipro causes to the system. We know that it has some impact on insulin in IGF-1. We know I'm, that ass- I'm assuming that would be for all fluoroquinolones, not just Cipro. Too. Ex- thank you, exactly. All the fluoroquinolones, all of them. So it definitely has impact of supporting that. And in our book, we have hundreds and hundreds of references to all of the different mechanisms of action. And there's a couple really great, like my colleague, Dr. Paul Faust, he does a beautiful um, chapter on its direct impact on the immune system and all the nuances of that, which Mm is, boy, howdy, that is really the hot topic today, both in COVID, Mm -hmm. but also in cancer and cancer research. And that chapter alone will illuminate for so many people why this therapeutic support and this therapeutic intervention is so helpful for the cancer patient, for prevention of cancer, for cleanup after cancer treatment, 
and also for other conditions. So we see very good benefit with it in modulating autoimmunity and having some antiviral effects. It's being used in the Lyme community, um, which is, a, I tell people all the time, it's, I think it's easier to treat cancer than Lyme, you know, mm -hmm. or work with people dealing with cancer than Lyme. It's such a tenacious systemic condition. Um, we're finding that mistletoe seems to have very um, beautiful impact and, there. And interestingly, hyper, uh, hyperthermia is an intervention that's sometimes used to treat Lyme. And Absolutely. so the mechanism of action may be pr pretty similar from that perspective. Totally. And when you put them together, the synergy, when you pair mistletoe with hyperthermia, like so many of my colleagues in Europe wow. have been doing for the past 50 years, talk about the biggest bang for your buck. We see some pretty extraordinary outcomes where I've had patients go over to Europe, stage four, sent home to hospice, unbelievable metastatic disease everywhere, getting um, IV mistletoe along with uh, both local, regional and whole body high heat hyperthermia that have put their cancer into complete remission um, in, in, in many cases, but at the very least into turning it back into a manageable disease process. And even more interesting, increasing the responsivity to other therapies again. So basically mm -hmm. patients become resistant using a fever therapy like mistletoe by itself or like hyperthermia or a combination of the two you actually can make that patient start to respond to their previous pharmaceutical interventions again. So overcoming that drug resistance. These are the places where I try to in, in, encourage my standard of care naysaying colleagues that we actually make them look better. Like this therapy is actually helpful to make their therapeutic interventions work a bit better. And so that's where you and I kind of started this conversation today is why is this not available to everyone, you know, to help the, you know, enhance standard of care, but also protect and support the terrain that surrounds those tumors and those tumor cells. Yeah. Let me just summarize and help you clarify. Um, the most effective form of mistletoe intervention, especially if you're treating aggressive cancer would be intravenous. And this is not something you want to do by yourself. You really need a clinician who can guide you through the process because I mean, you provide supportive training for a group and I definitely want you to discuss how people would find access to someone who understands how to use this therapy. And again, reinforcing the, the point that this is not an expensive therapy. Right. I mean, the cost of the therapy is going to be somewhere between two and $300 a month, highly affordable, highly effective. I think it's beyond irrational not to integrate this into uh, any cancer therapy you're, you're considering. Exactly, exactly. And I do want to come back to the point from 2003 until 2014, I only used this therapy as a subcutaneous therapy because that's mm -hmm. the only thing I'd learned. And that's the only way I, I uh, had known how to apply it. And it was the only way I had access to it. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 in some ways, I will, I'll be very frank. I think it put me on the map as an integrative oncology expert is because of the out of the patient experiences that then shared their experiences on forums such as inspire, you know, these cancer forums online mm -hmm. where people started describing that, you know, they were terminal, they were stage four, um, they were having terrible side effects, their, their conventional treatments stopped working. And suddenly they started working with somebody like me with this subcutaneous intervention 
that was a game changer for them mm-hmm. on a, you know, everywhere from putting them into complete remission to enhancing their uh, quality of life, to taking away their pain, to making their standard of care drug work better, to building up their bone marrow. So they didn't have to skip so many treatments because their bone marrow was too low to get the next infusion of chemotherapy, you name it. It started to bring that to awareness. And I did not start using the IV format until 2014 when I had a patient who we talk about this in the beginning of the book, who um, was going home to basically say goodbye to her family in Europe. And um, she was in incredible pain. She had clear cell carcinoma of the uterus that had metastasized everywhere. This is a very aggressive cancer that does not respond to standard of care um, interventions. And she'd quote unquote been failed by, although the wording they usually use is failed that she failed the treatment, but she was failed by um, three rounds of, or three different lines of, of standard of care therapy. So she basically went home to say goodbye. And in the interim, we thought, well, we can do some pain intervention and quality of life intervention with a colleague of mine who's doing um, high dose, you know, IV mistletoe along with hyperthermia. She did two weeks in his clinic. She came back a month later, had a scan and more than 80% of her disease burden was gone. Mm-hmm. And yet her clinicians at a big, well-known cancer clinic said to her, well, you'll still be dead in a few months. And so instead of them celebrating the news, they basically still, you know, went to the same beat of the drum saying you're going to be dead very soon. And she was pretty devastated by that. And I said, well, why don't you call the doctor who treated you in, in Germany and see what he says? And he basically was like, oh, well, it's kind of disappointing that there's still a little residual residual. Why don't you keep working on your train and come back in three months and we'll do one more round of therapy. This woman was given less than six months to live. That was in 2014. She's still here completely free of disease today with that combination. And it was from that that encouraged me to step out of my comfort zone and bring access to mistletoe um, intravenously into my clinical practice. And it was then a few months after that, that I was connected, you know, contacted by Johns Hopkins saying, we've been watching you. You haven't killed anyone with this therapy yet. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to start a clinical trial. Their initial clinical trial for mistletoe in this country was going to be subcutaneous for stage mm-hmm. four pancreatic patients only who had quote unquote failed previous mm-hmm. lines of therapy. When they attended, they attended the same conference I attended in um, uh, September of 2014. They heard the case study about my patient and they got curious and then realized no one was doing this really in the United States. So when they started apparently stalking me and realizing I was doing it and having really interesting outcomes, that's when I went back and helped them design a different IRB and a different um, study design to do an IV clinical trial on all solid tumor types that had been basically left without any other option. So it's still just the nature of it. The beast It was still for folks who were failed by standard of care, mm-hmm. who had solid tumor, who were otherwise, you know, um, no other options. And what's the status of that? Hopkins um, phase one phase is one. done. Phase one is done and they're doing, mm -hmm, we're moving into phase two and all the data from phase one is being churned for publication. So we know it was favorable. That's about all I can say without breaking all the rules and regulations, but um, enough that the FDA has already approved a phase two and three trial. So now they're philanthropically gathering funding again to pay for that phase two, because we've talked about already, no one's interested in standard of care to fund this trial yet it's clinically relevant enough that it's creating the curiosity to keep going and studying. So that's how these things have kind of impressed upon me that this is a therapeutic intervention that 
um, you know, this was a gal who was really in trouble and I still had great success with sub Q for many years. But when IV came under our ability to use, we could really hit some very, very aggressive cases that, that helped stabilize and turn things around, you know, enough that helped the patient actually get their feet underneath them. So they could start to change their diet and their lifestyle and bring on other interventions to help shore them up. Because um, the first time I used it in office was with a woman who was in hospice, who was basically incoherent and in extreme pain that even morphine wasn't touching it. And so we took the IV to her home, um, expecting to give her end of life care. And that was, my gosh, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we thought she had days left. And I was called in by my local hospice team to help give her, because they've worked with me before, brought me in doing acupuncture and homeopathy and other therapies and seen that we could bring some good resolve and good support for people in end of life care. So we brought that in as an intervention for end of life care. And uh, she's still here to tell the tale. (laughs) So, you know, that was not anyone's expectation. And I don't mean to imply that's what everyone's experience will be, but it was enough that made me feel bold enough to say, holy cow, if it can do this, what, what else can it do? Um, and so that's where I started training physicians all over. And my colleagues and I now train with the, uh, physicians association of anthroposophic medicine, also known as PAM, uh, there who, uh, sort of sponsor these trainings. We now have one available online for physicians. Um, and then we will be doing a live, uh, a live event. We're actually taking physicians next fall, 2022 to Europe to go into the Mm. hospital environment to actually see real times where you're doing boluses of mistletoe into pancreatic tumors or into the, um, uh, the, the, uh, portal, uh, vein for people who have, you know, um, HCC, the hepatocarcinoma, you know, um, you know, hepatic cancers that are very, very aggressive. There's a consideration of a clinical trial at, um, at one of the big institutions in this country specific to that cancer type, because it doesn't have a it doesn't fare well, uh, per standard uh, when, they, care. when they inject the tumors, is it under ultrasound guidance? It is. It is. Yeah. Yep. It is. And in some of the cases where we've seen at some of the presentations, live CT guided, um, embolization of mistletoe into the portal vein or into tumors, into, uh, the pancreas, I've seen some pretty extraordinary, um, experiences with that. And so we're taking physicians who have that capability, who work in environments that have CT or ultrasound guided imaging to be able to learn and master how to bring those in. We'll be definitely offering that in the hospital, um, in a clinical trial setting, uh, in the not so distant future, once we can get that hospital up and running, but that's where colleagues are doing this abroad successfully and writing papers about it. So I am certain that many people watching this would be interested, uh, in finding out how they could avail themselves to what a clinician who is trained in properly administering this therapy. So how would someone find one of those clinicians? Sure. The first and foremost, I'd go to the PAM website, which is, I believe it's wildapricot.org. Your search engine would take you to uh, www. Um, where did I, I want to make sure I'm getting this correct here The the place that's going to get you the most information on even the research and resource, as well as where to get training is anthro a N T H R O med M E D.org slash mistletoe. That's also the repository for articles as well as research, as well as who to see for clinicians. Perfect. And then the clinicaltrials.gov has the Johns Hopkins information of what's been completed and what's getting ready to start back up. 
And then there's a great um, mistletoe resource for ongoing literature and the evidence that's out there outside of the United States, which is a European resource, which is mistletoe-therapy.org and then slash scientific literature. And we'll get you some of these links for your show notes here for folks to go on directly. And then folks like mtiofhealth.org, mtiofhealth.org, which is the not-for-profit association that I'm associated with, which is where we're building the hospital. We also offer grants to help patients access this type of therapy. So that's one resource. Plus it also resources out physicians that have been trained in this. And then another resource that is who funded the clinical trial at Hopkins, who's not-for-profit foundation funded the clinical trial is believebig.org. All of those places resource out um, uh, you know, information about mistletoe, where to find a practitioner who is properly trained in it, as well as um, access some of the grants that are available to help people with funds, uh, funding issues have access to this therapeutic intervention. So again, we are in the workaround here. This is completely out of the system. And mm-hmm. by design, that's why we think we'll be successful in changing integrative oncology in this country. Are there, clinici- are there clinicians in most areas, most big states? I would say all the states have somebody, um, but they're definitely far and few between, but many physicians even can train patients how to do the sub Q and telemed um, and get them access to it. So so, that deter you. Yeah. So don't get discouraged if there's not a local clinician. Uh, You can probably, if you have your, your physician, personal physician is interested in this, he can easily access the training. Exactly. And we or have, or she, sorry. They, exactly. They, they will be yeah, non-binary, yeah, yeah. Um, but we can definitely access this now. Um, Pam has our, our three-day intensive uh, training on this available online. We are also launching a beginner's course in this online this fall, 2021. And then we have the immersion advanced training in Europe in fall of 2022 on the horizon. And so I really encourage people, this is not a protocol. This is not something like once you pick up the book and read it, you're not going to be an expert at mistletoe, either giving it to yourself as a patient or being an expert as a clinician, though we give a lot of great. Yeah, there's a lot. It's a solid book. You'll know if you really read it and understand it, you'll probably know as, as much as most of the clinicians do. 100%. Yeah, it's a good, well, well written. I appreciate it. The, Thank the you. Well, we're excited. We're excited to change, help it be another part of everyone's toolbox in their uh, plight with cancer. Yeah, that was a great summary. And if you have any interest in this, uh, when is the book going, Sam? So it is pre-order now. You can find it on drnasha.com to do a pre-order. You can go to the PAM site, that anthroposophical medical site. You can go to mistletoebook.com. That will also take you right to the pre-order link. Steiner Books is our publisher and will soon be available on Amazon. The book is available pre-order and we are expecting it to come out into hardback print the first week of November. So we're about a month out from its launch to the rest of the world. Okay, good. So we'll probably have this uh, interview air the last week of October. Perfect. So that's good. Yeah, awesome. to, to help support the launch of your book, because it really is an important uh, step in a very, very common, pervasive, unfortunately pervasive clinical condition. So, uh, so thanks for summarizing that. I also had a few curiosity questions, so as long as I have you, is... Uh, because if you're interested in metabolic therapies, I'm curious as the integration of this, 
And I, I mentioned earlier that there are some contraindications and mm -hmm. anorexia, but uh, on being underweight, which is very yeah. cancer cachexia is so common. So I'm wondering if you, what your thoughts are on uh, using ketone esters, mm -hmm. which are you know expensive, but you know, it's, it's Costco, it's still pretty low yeah. compared to other interventions, but will give you similar, uh, ostensibly give you similar benefits of actually doing it nutritionally. Yeah. So it, I, it seems to me like they're useful if you're going to target specific interventions like CT scans or yes. radiation yes. therapy, yes. that, that it's, you, you've got to be out of your mind not to use those things. And it's sad that most people understand that. But I, I'm wondering if there it, is it not only useful in that intervention, but also beyond where you use it supportively as an ongoing therapy? First, I love this. And interesting, you know, you talked about earlier um, cachexia may be contraindicated for ketosis. I actually have a very different experience. Okay, yeah. The, yeah. I, unless you have an expert like you. Exactly. You, you know you, how to get, yeah. If you know someone to, to walk through the minefields, you can do it. But generally, the answer is no. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And that's exactly it. If you have a guide to walk you through the minefield, that is a perfect statement. We know how to help people use um, ketosis therapeutically to get them through cachexia. And one of those strategies, to your point, is ketone esters. I, I appreciate the esters over the salts for a variety of reasons. I think they're more potent um, and more effective. And to your point as well, we will use them therapeutically. So for instance, 20, 30 minutes before hopping into hyperthermia, mm -hmm. hyperbaric oxygen, oh, really? radiation treatment, we put it in. It do, you, do, you, do you use it before or after? Before. Before. Yeah. Okay. And it's incredible because it puts that extra pressure in the system, which then creates an even more therapeutic response while protecting for things like the high cytotoxic therapies like radiation or even hyperbaric can be quite cytotoxic um, and hyperthermia can be quite cytotoxic. Wow. We can actually support that sort of storm. And, what, and what's the dose range on how many grams are you reduced? Golly, you know, I, I, somewhere between, you know, some patients, it depends if they're already in ketosis. Yeah. Yeah. I'd only need five to 10. Okay. If that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. If they're sort of ketosis naive and they're new to this, we might need 30 to 50. Like we might have okay. to do a lot harder, but it is a very powerful tool, very powerful tool to enhance the efficacy of some standard of care therapies, as well as some really well vetted integrative cancer therapies. And also if I have patients that are preparing for a PET scan or something, or, or patients who are starting to become metabolic, like work on creating metabolic flexibility, who are up against that carb flu, you know, low carb flu, mm -hmm. or, or really struggling to get their ketones up. We'll use that to kind of help push them up over the hurdle. It can really put people there um, and really help people even clean up. Like after they've done a round of say steroids, for instance, maybe they've just had a brain surgery for their glioblastoma. We'll use the ketone esters to get them into uh, therapeutic ketosis as quickly as possible to clean up and scavenge up all of the damaging effects and the growth factor effects of that hyperinsulinemia that comes with the steroid. Yeah, it, it's a, such a powerful, relatively inexpensive, extraordinarily safe and virtually unknown therapeutic intervention. Agreed. Totally. Yeah, agreed. It's just it, 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 probably a little bit more than mistletoe, but not much. Well, and to <laughs> do them together, like if I have yeah. a patient who's getting ready to do hyperthermia or radiation to bring that sort of trifecta together of, you know, the intermittent fasting with a little ketone ester bolus with your mistletoe. So you've got a little of that warming therapy happening when you hop into the hyperthermia or the radiation or the hyperbaric yeah, yeah, yeah. 
holy cow, you are, yeah. you are you're, you're optimizing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're hitting a optimizing lot. synergies, which is really powerful. Exactly. So uh, thank you for that. I'm so glad I was led to ask you that curiosity question because cool. I'm definitely changing my protocol. For <laughs> Score, I'm going to add about 10 grams. So, and then the key too, is obviously you want to be faster. You don't want to eat a bunch of fruit before you go into the chamber. Yeah. Cause that's the, the, the sugars would, uh, definitely stop the production of ketones. Um, so, well, as if you're watching this or listening, uh, I'm sure you're intrigued and impressed with the depth of knowledge that Dr. Nasha has. And it's just, I mean, I, the important overall picture is that there's a, a the, she has just touched on a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the depth of her knowledge in this area. I mean, it is so, I mean, she, she, she briefly alluded to the testing that's done, but you, it really, it's so, it's almost impossible to adequately treat someone unless you understand the testing and, and you, and you integrate it and implement it on a regular basis. And she does a magnificent job of that. I neglected to mention earlier, I be, one of the reasons I'm so impressed with her is, is that the, the mother of one of our, uh, our veterinary doctors who's on the side, Dr. Becker came down with some problem. And I, I participated in the consults when I just was beyond impressed with I had no idea the scope and breadth of your knowledge and, and what you were doing, which is, I was just shocked at how effective it was not effective, but how comprehensive. So, uh, and effective too, but I mean, but, but obviously initially you can only tell how comprehensive it is. Uh, but so I encourage anyone to, to really, who's struggling with this. And I know many of you are, is to seek someone like her or someone she's trained that can help you with these similar strategies. So in, in, I, I, I don't recall if that, there's links for that in the book. I mean, obviously to the mistletoe when you mentioned them, but how does one, uh, that, mistletoe is only one part of the intervention. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's an important part for sure. It, and it's, and it's, it's essential to almost all the therapies, but all the cancers, but, but how, how do you find the actual clinician? Is it the same people administering mistletoe will do the integrative oncology too? Such a great question. You know, and that's the one thing is, is, just because you're trained in mistletoe does not mean that you're also trained in, in integrative oncology. Mm -hmm. And if you're an integrative oncology expert, that doesn't mean you've been trained in mistletoe. And mm -hmm. so um, because of the demand we get on a regular basis and the inquiry we get on a regular basis from people from all over the world, January of 2020, I launched a, a metabolic approach to cancer sort of mastermind, bringing in the best of the best clinicians that I've known and worked with or consulted with on their patient's behalf that loved my approach and wanted to learn how to, you know, not just um, be given a fish, but learn how to fish. Mm -hmm. And so brought in our first cohort of 12, and then our next cohort had 25, and then our next one had 28. And we're starting our fourth cohort tomorrow, tomorrow night with uh, another like 20 physicians from all over the world. We now have um, almost, I think, 10 or 12 standard of care oncologists who've gone through the program. Um, the majority of the people going through my program are actually medical doctors from all over the world. Um, the, the vast majority of them in the United States, but these folks are the folks that have been taught in a particular methodology um, that I've created over 30 years of my own experience of test, assess, address, don't guess. So they learn the why, they understand exactly the how of really testing and evaluating the patient and becoming truly personalized with that patient. They learn a, a ton about 
um, a lot of the uh, off-label drugs and a lot of the other therapeutic interventions that are well vetted and pair well with standard of care or standalone. They learn mistletoe. They learn all about the terrain. We even talk a lot in our forums on even how to deal with the curtain crisis, you know, pandemic, the current mm -hmm. current COVID crisis, sure. because they're all in the same, like you know, they're still they're in the same arena as far as we keep neglecting the terrain of the individual and we mm -hmm. keep looking at the wrong approach to treat or handle these crises and we're getting further and further and further away from what needs to be done to change these outcomes and these physicians are incredibly passionate we'll have almost 100 of them trained by the end of the year and um, all over the world and our website drnasha.com has um has those graduates information okay, and that, those that's the key and, yeah exactly. i'm going to make sure that link is prominent because i mean Absolutely. the mistletoe is helpful yeah, uh, and you may have someone locally who's pretty good you're comfortable with. I'm not suggesting you have to see one of these hundred. No, nope, not but at all. Many yeah. people don't have any clue how to find these things, right. and uh, you know, so that's an issue. And now, um, I, just just a personal question too, sure. with respect to, I mean, many people go to Mexico, and, and you're going to be close to Mexico. I think you're even moving to Mexico. Yeah, yeah. So, what what do you think the best clinic in Mexico is? Uh, I actually went to the clinic called Sanavi, not for cancer treatment, but just overall for yeah. tune-up yeah. and was impressed with their therapy. And I wonder where you would rank them and are there better ones in Sanavi? Well, it's great because I know a lot of, the, I mean, I've, for just a little context, my brother-in-law was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer um, when he was 35 years old and he passed away in 2004 after a 24 year you know, stage four pancreatic terminal. Wow, diagnosis. that's pretty darn good. Right, exactly. So when he finally died of the disease, you know, it was, he had 24 bonus years for crying out loud. Probably um, from some of the interventions, I would imagine. 100%, and his yeah, interventions yeah. were- They going, don't die, people don't die, people understand, people typically do not die from cancer, they die from the treatment. Right, and he never did any standard of care, none. Yeah. They got in there with surgery, opened up and went, oh my God, it's everywhere, closed him back up and said, yeah. go home and get your affairs in order. My husband always tells a story. They told him to go home and get his affairs in order. He gave them the finger and took off south of the border. And yeah. lo and behold, 24 years later, he, you know, he finally succumbed of the disease, but he didn't get actively sick. He had a quote unquote a progression because it never was in remission, a progression in December of 2003 and was gone in March of 2000. Um, for this was not like he was suffering for 24 years. This was him thriving, living, getting his work in the Smithsonian as a famous soil scientist, finding a marine love of his life, raising three beautiful boys, watching like, like all the things he lived a very beautiful life with cancer. That's yes, the we're that's, always trying to beautiful, be. beautiful. And so in that, I started studying, I started going and exploring all these clinics down in Mexico. And there are so many beautiful human beings in some of these clinics that run these clinics. But for me, when I'm a metabolic filter and I love the mm -hmm. kind of testing and I like to bring in the best of both worlds of modern application with ancient application, I think the clinic that probably is doing it best right now, because they have somebody like Dr. Paul Anderson on their board, who's very, very um, up to date in his studies on vetted integrative therapies but also metabolic therapies is sonaviv to your point oh really so oh you you you're enforcing my impression i am and i spent I, I did uh, we had planned this i have no idea i'm just curious That's, and i don't want to be like i don't want to diss others but i like that they are yeah 
they're blending kind of the best of, they're moving forward. A lot of our cancer clinics in Mexico are doing the same things they've done for 40 or 50 years. And we've learned a lot since then. So we want to evolve and move with the time. And I think they've done a nice job of it. Um, and I've gone there with patients and I've gone there like you, they offer like a physician heal thyself little program and whatnot. And I do like what they're doing. Um, oh, it's beautiful. So, I mean, it's an oceanfront uh, yeah. apartment yeah. that you stay in property and yep. there's no EMFs. You can't have yep. your cell phone there. You gotta, so they they don't get it. your own clothes in there. They have you put on organic. And a lot of what I learned from them is we're applying to the hospital we're building in uh, yeah, you know, it's Arizona. Pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I actually got my... EMF consultant, Brian Hoyer out there to help no remediate them a little bit more. So, cause they, they built cell phone towers. They, they right. didn't, but the community built them not too far from the property. Love it. How cool. Good, good yeah. side, good accidental side note there. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Sorry. So thanks. I, uh, I don't want to overwhelm people with stuff, but the book again is mistletoe, the emerging future of integrative oncology. Nailed it. All right. <laughs> it only took four times. We got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. So, and it's available real shortly. Just yeah. you can pre-order it if it's not available yet, and it should be to your house real soon. Certainly, an important resource uh, to integrate in any type of cancer therapy. So, thank you for a number of things for being a leader, an innovator, a pioneer, courageous, uh, and establish and recognizing that people seeing you absolutely does not scale. The people who want to see you, you could live like a thousand lifetimes and not see them all. So you, you, you had to, to reproduce yourself and you've been doing that pretty effectively. And I thank you for make, making access to these approaches so available and continuing to improve. So uh, you're a major resource out there and I really appreciate you and for writing the book and more importantly, for providing a solution that conventional medicine just fails so miserably with. Thank you. I'm really grateful for being here with you. Thank you. Okay.